Do you remember the, uh, the poor, demoralized army of Israel as, uh, as they were standing across from the Philistines? Daily, Goliath would come out and just abuse them verbally and challenge them. Like, if anybody's brave enough, come on out and fight me. And nobody wanted to fight him. Nobody, nobody thought that that was a particularly good idea. But then God raised up the future uh, Davidic king, David, as still a young man at this point, and you know the rest of the story, as they say. David met him in battle, hit him between the eyes. Giant went down. Jeez, um, David went up, took the sword out of his hand, cut his head off, held it up triumphantly, blood oozing and dripping from there. And, uh, and that was the best thing the Israelites had seen in a long long while was that sight of their champion David and the giant's head and seeing the backsides of the Philistines because when they saw that they spun around and off they went Um, it says in fact if you want to read that I just remembered I had that included uh, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and, and Ekron. And it's that shout part that I, I wanted you to see in that verse is that they rose with a shout. And I'd kind of like us all to rise with a shout at the end of this sermon today, not because it's just a blockbuster sermon and you're going to be, ooh, that was a great sermon. So, no, but if you catch what the Bible is saying today, you ought to be encouraged. You ought to feel like an Israelite watching David hold the head of Goliath up, and it should make you want to rise up and shout. Here's the big idea. Let the glorious, irresistible grace of God raise you up to inspired obedience. We're going to look at 10 parts of the story here that really point us in the direction of God's role in all of this as God is pushing forward the kingdom of his son. I want to give you a quick idea of how this ties in with the entirety of the book of Acts. Luke starts us out here in our section taking us back to what happened with Stephen. If you think back to what happened right after Stephen's death, we were told that, that the gospel went out as men were dispersed throughout the world. And the first thing that happened then was that Philip went down to Samaria. Do you remember that part of the story? I, I trust that you, that you do. Um, now think back to the death of Stephen for a moment with me. Who were the people that were most responsible for causing Stephen's death? He said, well, Jewish people. Well, a specific subsection of Jewish people. You might remember that Stephen was chosen as one of the seven. And the seven, we said at the time, you know, Philip and Stephen and the rest, Nicanor, and I don't remember the rest of their names, but they were all Greek names. And they were given the role of helping the Hellenistic widows. Hellenist means they were Greek-cultured Jewish people as opposed to a very uh, Hebrew-cultured kind of um, Jewish people. And, and that, so that was where their connection was. And then what we find out is, is that there's this, there are these men, men from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia that were debating Stephen on a daily basis. Do you remember that? And he bested them every time, and it made them upset. But probably what upset them more than that was the fact that Stephen himself was one of them. They were all Hellenists. And it was Hellenists then that actually ended up causing the death of Stephen. And note that Luke now connects this story that we're looking at today 
to the aftermath of Stephen's death. And here's what I think is going on. And there's certainly a lot of layers in this story, but I believe that this story represents the irresistible grace of God toward the very group of people who killed Stephen. That's what I think is actually happening here to, to, to the Hellenists. In a sense, it's almost the answer to Stephen's prayer. Because in his dying prayer, he says, don't, you know, don't lay this sin against them. Don't you know, uh, forgive them. Um, and, and that's what I think is going on. So let's look at these ten pieces of evidence for God's glorious, irresistible grace. Does that sound good? God's irresistible, glorious, glorious, irresistible grace is a good thing. We should want this, right? We should love seeing this. Well, first of all, persecution moves messengers into position. I'm rereading part of what Ryan already read. Now, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, Preaching the Lord Jesus. Recall that there was this, this scattering of the church after Stephen was stoned. Remember that Philip had gone to Samaria as part of that explosion. And now we find out that Samaria was not the only place they went. In chapter 11, the gospel is headed north. You'll re recall how we've been moving along, how, how Peter was... In Jerusalem, and then he goes to Lydda. I'm, I'm pointing the wrong direction because I'm facing you, but uh, he goes to Lydda. He ends up um, from Lydda to Joppa, from Joppa to Caesarea. And now if you just track northward, you get to Phoenicia, you get to Antioch, which is in Syria. And if you were to go west out into the Mediterranean, you get to Cyprus, which are these three areas he talks about. The stoning of Stephen, the death of Stephen is what generates this. And that was within God's sovereign purposes. I'm not saying that God did something evil. It isn't that God stoned Stephen. But it was within the sovereign purposes and will of God. Those Hellenistic people meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Stoning of Stephen was like opening a dry milkweed pod. Has anybody ever done that? Do they have milkweed pods in Kansas? You'll have to give me a yes or no. There are milkweed pods. Okay, so I grew up on a farm for the first four or five years of my life, and that was one of them, I, just one of my cherished memories is the milkweed pod. How many did that as kids and just grooved on that whole thing? Yeah, we didn't have the Internet, so uh, <laughs> we found different things to entertain us. But you open up a milkweed pod. If you open it up too early, you, your hands get really, really sticky, don't they, because of all the, 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 the milk there in, in the milkweed pod. But... Um, but anyway, you know, when you open it at a certain point, it looked like a little bird inside, like a fully formed bird, but it wasn't quite ready yet because you have to let it go. You have to let it get really dry. And when that thing opens into itself, you get all these, these seed pods that, that, that fly away and you get new milkweed. Yeah? And everybody wants more milkweed, right? Actually, you do. You do, don't you, Don? Because, Don will know this, teaching Bob, the only food source of monarch butterfly larvae are milkweeds. Yeah, without milkweeds, you don't have monarch butterflies. And without the dispersion that took place after the death of Stephen, you, you don't have what we're looking at here today. It was, it was in the purposes of God that this took place. Okay, secondly, preaching pushes the boundary. Do you know the name of some of the men that were preaching? 
No, you don't. No, you don't. They're not actually named. It didn't say. God blessed these unknown men who had arrived there. We know that they were from Hellenistic areas uh, of, of, for the Jews. These were areas of high Hellenistic concentration. They didn't preach at first to them. Some only preached to the Jews, but then there were those that also included and preached to the Hellenists. If you want to talk about the ultimate revenge for Stephen's death, this, this, is, this is it. God conquers his enemies with his overwhelming grace through the gospel as it is preached. Stephen's death did not shorten God's arm. In fact, it just sent these little floating seedlings to all of these places. And the gospel was preached. It was a, a formidable inundation. A formidable inundation. They could not repress it. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, these unknown guys and gals. The Lord was with them, and a great number of people who believed turned to the Lord. That's a God thing. Very much clearly a God thing. In fact, it says the hand of the Lord was with them. It was God's hand doing it. Does God have hands? No. Yes and no. No, God does not have a body. He, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But metaphorically speaking, the Bible talks about his hands all the time. It talks about multiple parts of his body. But his hand, always that's always a display of, of God's power. God doesn't fight fair, so if you think... Anybody that thinks that God should constrain himself and you know, fight with both hands behind his back, God doesn't do that. Yes, the word has to be faithfully preached by unnamed evangelists in this case, but it is God's doing. It is the power of God, God moving through him. Paul could say to the Colossians, him we proclaim. So Paul was preaching, preaching to the Gentiles in places like Colossae. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Now, if you just put the period there, you would say, man, that takes a lot of human effort. And from one vantage point, you could say that is true. For this I toil, struggling with all the, his energy, his energy, that he powerfully works within me. How often have you heard the uh, tapestry illustration? gets used a lot from pulpits, you know, the one I'm talking about, where people say if you try to understand what God is doing in your life, you're looking at the backside of the tapestry where you got all the knots and the pieces of thread and you can't make out the pattern. But, oh, we're told if you could look from behind it from God's perspective, you would see this, this, this beautiful design. What Luke is doing here, if you really pay attention, is he's, he's saying, you know, I don't want to wait that long. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a picture of the big grand scheme of things as to what God is doing. It is, it is God's hand at work. God is advancing through these various factors, these, this dispersion of these men into these places and the whole, whole rigmarole with the Hellenists. All of this is God's hand advancing the kingdom of Christ. Number four, great numbers believed and turned to the Lord. The proof is in the pudding. Again, it states, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you know what's kind of neat about that phrase? It's one of the few places in the New Testament where you get the idea of turning or repentance and faith in such a short little burst in that close succession here. You've got believing and you've got turning. Those who believed turned. Usually the order kind of is the opposite in our minds. But if you think about it, 
we are saved by faith, grace through faith, but faith, the faith that saves, true faith, is a repentant faith. We could just as easily say we are saved by repentance in the sense that we are saved by a believing sort of repenting. That is, we are turning away from old thoughts and our sin and everything and turning and expressing our belief and faith in Christ. And what we get here is a genuine revival. Not, how, how many have ever been to a revival? Yeah? Right. But those aren't actual revivals. Did you know that? The things we call revivals invariably are not revivals because you can't schedule a revival. You know who gets to schedule revivals? God. God schedules a revival. You can call it a revival all day long. That doesn't mean there'll be a revival there. God schedules a revival. And this is a huge harvest of, of souls with a tremendous number of conversions. Paul could say, you know, uh, when it comes to Apollos and I, I planted, he watered, but God gave the increase. And when we see that, when we understand that it's the work of God bringing about this incredible number of conversions, when we see that God is the one who works revival, you know, that sets us at liberty, doesn't it? It sets us, we, we, we know it's a God thing. If, if we become a missionary and we go to a place that's resistant to the gospel, and this has happened in the history of ministry, missions, there have been people who have gone to a place and they have worked and toiled and, and blood, sweat, and tears, and they've lost family members and, the, and never seen a single convert. That's in, that's in God's hands. Or, and the next guy along may come along, and the next man or woman after, that follows may come and have a huge harvest. And is it, well, well, that second missionary was just that much better? Probably not. Pro because it, God is sovereign over this. God brings this incredible number of people to, to faith. Number five, the grace of God works. The grace of God works. And you may think I'm repeating myself, uh, but this passage is just... Throughout, it's really about this irresistible grace of God as he employs it here. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Who's surprised by that, that they sent Barnabas? Who should they have sent? Who are they always sending in these cases? Not that we have a huge number of these things, but who would you expect to have been sent? Peter, right? Wasn't Peter always going? Now, maybe it's because it wasn't actually jumping through one of these threshold experiences like we've talked about before. Um, because it's the Hellenists, it's not going to the Gentiles or to the, you know, to the Samaritans. Maybe it's that. Um, I think it's also bound up in the person of Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? Such a great guy. you, you got to love Barnabas. He was such an encourager and all of those things. But we also know that he was from the Isle of Cyprus. And where had this gone? Phoenicia, Antioch, and Cyprus. So, so Barnabas is one of them. He, he is a genuine Hellenist and he could relate. And what he finds when he gets there is the grace of God at work. It literally says that. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, how do you see grace? Hmm. How do you see grace? And you, know, you can ask people, what, well, what, first of all, what's the definition of grace? And, and, and people, most people learn a very simple definition of grace, which is that it is the unmerited favor of God toward us, the unmerited favor of God, especially when we think of salvation and so forth. Actually, that word is very 
nuanced in Greek. It has a lot, like, you know how, like, you can look something up in Webster's and it's got, like, six definitions for a word? Grace is a word like that in Greek. And uh, I'll, I'll, give you a, uh, I'll give you an actual definition from Freiburg's lexicon. I think I've got it there. Yeah, of exceptional effects produced by God's favor, ability, power, and enabling. That's like the fourth definition down in a long list of, of, of how that functions. Seeing God's grace in this sense of how it is meant is a lot like seeing the wind. Have you ever seen the wind? You lived in Kansas your whole life. Have you ever seen the wind? No, you haven't, right? No, <laughs> you've never seen the wind. Ever in your whole life, you've never seen it. You've, you've seen the effects of it. You've seen the effects of it. And so when Barnabas gets here, he sees these powerful effects of God. It's like going to Greensburg, you know, the day after the tornado. And what would you have seen if you'd gone to... Did anybody happen to go there the, the day after? What a crazy place that must have been. What did, what did Barnabas see? He didn't see the wind. He didn't see the spirit. He didn't see grace in, in, in that abstract sense. What he saw was the effect of it. He saw the walls that had been you know, collapsed. Because up to this point, think about the Hellenists. Who were these people? They were stubborn, proud, gospel-resistant people. They wanted to kill anybody they got in their way. Anybody that was out proclaiming the gospel was fair game. And God just comes in by, and by his spirit, by his hand, he just smashes those walls. And Barnabas comes and he sees the outcome of this. And his response is gladness. See, if you want to know what you're going to walk away with today from this message, other than I didn't get anything out of it, um, hopefully that's not what you say but most Sundays, but, you know, if you, if you came hoping for me to give you something practical, um, open your auto manual and you can find out how to change a tire. That's practical. Um, but if you're looking at this verse and you're, these verses and you're saying, what, what do I come away with? How do I apply this? How about gladness? How about gladness when we see the grace of God knocking down the walls of that resistance? If we see this the way we ought to see it, we ought to feel like the Israelites coming up out of their spider holes, you know, hidden away, coming up and looking and seeing the backsides of the Philistines and seeing David holding on to the head. That, that's how we ought to feel. That's how Barnabas felt. It's like, woo! Look what God has done. Look what, by this, what God, by his spirit, has, has done. And it says he was glad. That's the, that's the proper response of our heart when we see the grace of God operate. We should be glad. Six, God encouraged his new children by his servant, by his spirit. I know that's wordy, but that's exactly what actually happens. It says, and he, that's Barnabas, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Here we have seen how the grace of God worked on these former enemies, turning them from sin to faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen that God's hand did it. We've seen to the backside of the tapestry, and now Barnabas is giving them sort of discipleship 101. Now, I have a feeling that he probably told them a lot of things. I think many times Luke uh, summarizes, but look at the summary. This is a pretty good, if you're trying to disciple a new believer, this would be good, good to know. Um, he, he told them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Purpose. And this can almost feel like a little bit of a contradiction to the rest of the passage, which is all about what God is doing and, and His Spirit is enabling. And 
all of the like, but that's not really the case. Um, as believers, from our perspective, and understand, when we're talking about God's power, God's spirit, God's sovereignty, there's always sort of two sides to the equation. We read in the scripture to understand God's role, and God's role is primary. But from the human vantage point, we do make decisions, don't we? We make decisions, we make choices, these are real, these are valid. As a believer, when you come to Christ, one of the things you realize pretty early on is there are people who make professions of faith who don't continue. They, they make a bold profession one day, and then a year later, ten years later, a week later, whatever it might be, they're nowhere to be found. They turn away. The faith that saves us, the genuine faith, biblical faith, not the faith of demons, but genuine faith that saves is a faith that perseveres. One that perseveres. And when we come to Christ, we, we make every effort to remain in that faith and to remain steadfast of purpose that we not let go of Christ. Our role, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, puts it that we are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So does it depend on us? We're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So who begins our faith? Jesus. Who finishes our faith? Jesus. But, but what are we to be doing? Looking to him, remaining steadfast. Paul could say, and this is another one of those places where it kind of brings both together. Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get busy. Do it. Make it happen. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's really ultimately the Lord, but from our vantage point, we are to remain steadfast. We are to remain faithful. Seven. Well, this is a lot, isn't it? It's like a full theology in one sermon. Uh, many more were added to the Lord. It says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Well, I thought all, there were already a great many that had been brought in. Well, Barnabas got there, and many more were added. Luke has a real admiration for, for Barnabas. You'll notice that all the way through. He's told us that he was a big giver. Remember, he sold land and gave it to the church. We know that he was an encourager. That's why, why they gave him this name. He was a good man. Luke says, he's a good man. How is he good? What? Most of us aren't good, are we? Didn't Jesus say no one's good except the Father? What kind of a good man was he? Well, he's a man that the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of. He was a redeemed Christ follower. The Holy Spirit was operating and goodness was operating in his life. So through Barnabas, through those that had already come to those places and preached, and even, I would bet, from some of those in the story, who've already been one to Christ are already winning more people to Christ. But through this, Antioch is just blowing up. Isn't that what we would say today? Oh, it was, it, oh Antioch, man, is blowing up. It, it, it becomes this hub. It becomes this sort of second Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is sort of seen as the, 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 the mother church city of, of the Jewish church, then Antioch really becomes that for the Gentile church. When it says many more were added, what does that suggest? Many more were added. You grammarians. We've talked about this before. When you get to this, it's in the passive voice, which if you took high school English, you're, you got a lot of red checks at some point 
where the teacher said, not anymore because you used Microsoft Word and it told you not to do it. But back in my day, we didn't have Microsoft Word telling us that, so we just had English teachers and then they just scored us poorly. Um, this is in the passive. Who was doing this? Tell me who did it. Just write it out. Okay, who did it? God did it. When it says they were added, look at, look at Acts 2.47 where, where Luke spells it out. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is all God's doing. Number eight, Christ's chosen instrument is brought to bear. Remember Saul? Saul, a.k.a. Paul. Yeah? And how Jesus said, he is my chosen instrument. And I'm going to show him all that he's going to suffer for me. He's going to be the, you know, the, 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 the guy that goes to the Gentiles and, and so forth. Um, do you remember? Do you remember after Saul got saved, he got out there right away. Right out of the box, he was out there and he was arguing with people. He was disputing. He was debating. He went to the synagogues and he, he got into arguments and he told them about Jesus. And he, and he got people riled up. He got them so riled up they wanted to kill him. So he leaves Damascus. Somehow, he, eventually, he gets to Jerusalem, and what does he do there? He starts debating people again, and he gets riled, somebody said riled up, I think I heard that, and they got riled up, and what did they want to do? Kill him, <laughs> and he had to, and to flee to Tarsus. Here's the million-dollar question. Who were the people that were trying to kill Paul there at the end in Jerusalem? The plot thickens. The Hellenists. They were the ones that tried to kill Paul, and that's why he took off to Tarsus. Now look at verse 25 in that context. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but this is like my favorite part of the story. Because I love it when I see in the Bible where there's something just so Mm, symmetrical and efficient. I mean, God is an efficient God. God, God seems to work this way. If you go back to the death of the uh, of the five missionaries back in the fifties, you know Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Those, you, you, the one I'm ta- I've talked about that before just recently. But um, they went to Ecuador and they were they were trying to win the Warani Indians, um, as they were called. Uh, actually, they were called the Alka, and uh, and they were killed. They were speared to death. Now, eventually, the Warani were won to Christ. And you might say, well, what happened? Did 10 years go by and then some other missionaries came along and decided to do the same thing over and try it again? No, no. It was Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott. They were the ones who, in short order, went right back in. And, and in that way, they, they brought those people to Christ. And that's kind of what's going on here. God uses Paul, who had debated and argued with the Hellenists in exactly the same way that Stephen had done, which got Stephen killed, and, and Paul sent to Tarsus. And now, now the whole thing comes around full circle, and Paul is right back in there. He and Barnabas have this incredible tag team, you know, tandem tenure of, well, actually one year. In the city of Antioch, the city where followers of Christ are first referred to as Christian. This becomes a launch pad for mission to the Gentiles. Isn't God cool? Can we say that about God without demeaning God? God is cool. Like you look at stuff like that and you go, wow. It's almost like somebody planned it this way. Yeah. 
Number nine, the Holy Spirit speaks by the prophet. We're introduced to a guy named Agabus. This is Luke's habit to introduce somebody and then come, that person pops up later. We'll see this with Agabus. But uh, yeah, uh, he comes and it says, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Isn't it interesting how the hand of God is at work even in that? Do you recognize that the hand of God is at work in that? You know how you know that? Because in the Bible, every time famine pops up, God uses it in mighty ways. Think, think back. Just do a little Rolodex thing back into the Bible. What, where's the first time that, you, that God does that? Well, there was, there was this guy named Jacob, and he had 12 sons, and one of them got sold into slavery down to Egypt. You might remember that one. And, and then all at once, there was famine in the land. And what did, the, what did Jacob, Jacob and his boys end up down in in Egypt, and they spend 400 years there <laughs> as a people. And then God brings them up by me. So all of the things that set up the redemption of the people of Israel began with a famine. When you look at the, at the Davidic king, when you look at David, who was his grandpa? Boaz. And you had the story of Ruth and Naomi. And why did they go down to Moab in the first place? Where we're introduced to Ruth, well, it was because there was a famine in the land. And a famine here becomes the means by which God um, brings this perfect mission team together. So number 10, God's team gets deployed. Barnabas and Saul are becoming that team that will be the first real mission team to the Gentile world. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So do you see all the intricacies of what's been going on here? Just think back through the book of Acts. And I know you, you don't have photographic memory of, about these things. But just think about how Barnabas was the one that came along and, and came alongside of Saul when he went back to Jerusalem the first time. And, and now how he's gone and gotten him. And they've worked together. They've been part of a team teaching. And now this, this um, famine becomes the reason to send them off together on a journey. And that becomes, as it were, kind of the beginning of God sending them forth as a missionary team. That is God's sovereign work. You know, you can look at this. You can look at this passage, this glorious, irresistible grace of God. And it, it, what it ought to do, if we really get a hold of it, is it should inspire us to obedience. I mean, if God ordained the persecution, the suffering, the death of Stephen to bring about the preaching of the gospel with his hand enabling it, bringing great numbers, turning to the Lord, believing in the Lord by his grace, employing his servant Paul, his chosen instrument, bringing him back into the very people group that had, that had caused all this mayhem in the first place. When you see God operating that way, what we ought to visually, spiritually see is the backside of the Philistines. That's what we ought to see. We, we ought to see that, that head of Goliath hanging there and realize that is our God. That is what he does. Maybe you came away from Thanksgiving and you were with some of your unbelieving family members and you thought, is there any hope? How am I ever going to turn these people? To, they're, they're just so lost. Boys and girls, they're just Hellenists is what it really gets down to. 
They're just a bunch of Hellenists. And, and so we keep praying because the God that did this that we're reading today is still at work in the world. And he's still conquering enemies, knocking down walls by his grace. You can't see grace, but it just comes along and all at once, all at once there was all these walls one second and they're gone the next. That's what we need to be glad in. That's, that's what we need to have faith for as believers. And if you're an unbeliever today, may I just suggest to you that, hey, look on the bright side. You could be a Hellenist. You could, you, you could, you could just be a Hellenist. And tell me if this fits. If, if you're in that position and you're a Hellenist, then you hate Christians, or at least you have had a history of hating Christians. They get under your skin. You want to argue with them. You know, if you met them in a dark alley, you're not sure, but what they, you know, maybe they wouldn't emerge safely and unscathed after, after that little meeting. You've just been anti, anti, anti. But perhaps today, and maybe you're feeling it, that, that sort of wind-like sound where the Holy Spirit and God's grace is just pounding at your walls and you're feeling them shake and, and, and you're seeing the dust fall down and you're like, oh my goodness, what is about to happen here? And if that is you and you're scared, I can, I can appreciate that. We don't like to have our world rocked, but the thing is God has to rock your world to bring you to salvation. He, he has to destroy your resistance for you to be able to turn and believe in Jesus Christ. So we just hold them out to you today. And we just, we, we just tell you, look, God is in the business of saving people just like you. And we know that because he saved people like us. And we would love for this place, Great Bend, Kansas, to be the place where you were first called a Christian. And we would like Grace Community Church to be that church that comes alongside and encourages you to stay in the faith, to remain steadfast. Let's pray. Lord, we see that, that your grace is so strong and so powerful, but, it, but we don't see it. And many times, Lord, as, as believers, though we're supposed to be walking by faith and seeing these things, Lord, sometimes we lose sight of it. So forgive us for that. Lord, give us faith for those that, that we know and that we love, that we pray for, and we just ask that you'd bring those walls crashing down by your grace. Lord, that you would bring a great multitude to faith in you and that you would use us for that purpose. Lord, we, you are sovereign and we can't dictate to you. We plant, we water, you have to give the increase. And so, Lord, we just throw ourselves upon your power and your grace and we plead for, for a, a mighty movement a mighty movement of your grace and the gospel and the Holy Spirit in this place, and that there might even be one today that would hear that and turn to you and believe upon Christ and receive salvation and be enfolded into the church. We ask it in his name. Amen.